So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome to the Vexing Rebel Podcast. I'm your host, Kurt, the Vexing Rebel. Today I want to talk to you about interposition, nullification, secession, and rebellion. But before I do, I would like to add an addendum to my previous podcast concerning civil disobedience. I want to talk about prosecuting government officials and their accessories, filing civil suits against every participant individually, against the department they work for, against the community they work for, and so on. For example, There is a man in Salt Lake City, Utah, whose dog was killed by a cop who trespassed in his yard. I have a link to this story on the Facebook fan page and on Twitter, at The Vexing Rebel. Basically, what happened was, a man was at work and he got a phone call stating that a police officer had shot his dog. He came home and discovered animal control and a few officers standing in his front yard. When he approached them and asked them what happened, they told him that a police officer had entered the backyard looking for a missing child and had shot the dog because he so-called feared for his life. When the man went into his backyard to see what was going on, he saw his dog's body quite a distance away from the gate. The point is, why was the officer in the man's backyard without a court order or a valid warrant? Simply stating that he was looking for a missing child is not a valid reason. Secondly, as the man asked in the video, why didn't the police officer upon seeing the dog simply back up and shut the gate? Here's the reality of the situation. The police officer is actually guilty of criminal trespass, among other crimes involving the dog. Destruction of private property, cruelty to animals, so on. Whatever charges need to be filed. The victim in this, the man who owned the dog, needs to seek criminal charges against the police officer. He needs to seek criminal charges against all the other officers who enabled him. He needs to seek criminal charges against the supervisors of that officer who protect and enable him, and the chief of police if necessary. He then needs to file a civil lawsuit against the officer who shot the dog personally, against any officers who enabled him, against the supervisors who enabled him, and then he needs to sue the department itself. He needs to sue each and every member of the city council individually, the mayor, and the city manager if they have one. He then needs to sue Salt Lake City itself. And there may be many of you out there going, wow, that's overkill, isn't it? No, it's not. Whenever a tyrant trespasses upon you, when a tyrant seeks to increase his power and his leverage over you, you have to do any and all means necessary to stop that tyrant in his tracks. If the man successfully, or even unsuccessfully, but pushes for it, gets criminal charges put up against the officers, sues the officers, and so forth and so on, the next time an officer decides that he just wants to wander in somebody's backyard and shoot their dog, he may think twice about it. The supervisors may think twice about it before they enable his behavior. The officers that are next to him as partners and so forth may think twice before they allow him to do it. You really have two choices. You can stand like a man or you can be sheared like a sheep. It's up to you.
An individual can make great strides in the fight for liberty, but too often the sacrifices made by the individual alone are not enough in and of itself to bring about change. It is often the leadership, valor, and at times, unfortunately, martyrdom of the individual that sets a brush fire among the populace who then bring the tyrants to their knees. Groups of like-minded individuals working in concert against the encroachment of liberty have several powerful tools at their disposal. Too often these tools are ingrained in the minds of the populace by tyrants and their enablers as being unpatriotic, treasonous, fruitless, or without merit. These lies abound as yet another tool tyrants use to keep the sheep from straying. The tyrants do this because they fear the power you have over them. Remember always, government is created by the people to serve them and protect their rights. The government serves the people at their whim and discretion. Your country, county, or town are not the government. You owe the government nothing. You are not beholden to the government. The government is not your friend or loved one. The government is a tool you use to aid in protecting your rights. When the government ceases to function as was intended or seeks to grow and control you after you have exhausted your individual attempts to restore liberty, it is time for society to take a stand and utilize their powerful arsenal. That arsenal lies in a subset of your natural rights to self-defense. I, of course, am speaking of the right of interposition, nullification, secession, and revolution. Interposition is the act of coming between an offender and his intended victim for the purpose of defending the victim. For example, during the standoff at Ruby Ridge or at Waco, the sheriff, if he was doing his job and abiding by his oath of office, should have intervened between the victims, the family at Ruby Ridge or the Branch Davidians in Waco, and the feds who came to basically murder them. Had the sheriffs intervened, being the most powerful peace officers in the county, they could have driven away the feds and de-escalated the situation, and then if anything needed to be done, arrests made or whatever, the sheriff could have conducted that, including arrests made against the feds. By right, the sheriff could have interposed himself between the family at Ruby Ridge or the Branch Davidians and the federal government. He could have sought to seek justice and to protect the rights of the individuals against an encroaching, tyrannical federal government. A state can also intervene when a federal government oversteps its reach. For example, in the Bundy Ranch situation, the state, who many members of the elected officials stated that it was a uh, travesty what was going on there, well, why didn't they do something about it? Why didn't they stand between the people at the Bundy Ranch and the federal government? Because they're cowards? Because they're tyrant enablers? That's why. But by right, the state could have done that. This is what interposition is all about. A prime historical example of interposition was the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, which were utilized in an attempt to have the state governments defend the populations of their states against the tyrannical Alien and Sedition Act passed by the federal government. Keep in mind that not all of the founding fathers were saints. John Adams, during his presidency, oversaw the passing of the Alien and Sedition Act, a very tyrannical piece of legislation. The sibling of interposition is nullification. Nullification is the act of determining a law or action null and void. Whereas interposition is a device used to intervene on behalf of someone or some society of people for the purpose of protecting them, nullification is used to cancel out the intended action of the usurper entirely. Many may argue that the Supreme Court has final say on the so-called constitutionality of a law, but I defy anyone to show me the specific wording in the Constitution that grants this power to the Supreme Court. The argument can be made that the Constitution does allow for the Supreme Court to have jurisdiction in, quote, controversies to which the United States shall be party, end quote, but that does not necessarily denote supreme declaration of the constitutionality of a law or decree. It is akin to allowing the fox to guard the henhouse. Thomas Jefferson put it very well, 
quote, the judiciary of the United States is the subtle core of sappers and miners constantly working underground to undermine the foundations of our confederated fabric. They are construing our Constitution from a coordination of a general and special government to a general and supreme one alone. This will lay all things at their feet. Later in the quote, he goes on to say, Having found from experience that impeachment is an impractical thing, a mere scarecrow, they consider themselves secure for life. They skulk from responsibility to public opinion. The only remaining hold on them under a practice first introduced into England by Lord Mansfield, an opinion is huddled up in conclave, perhaps by a majority of one, delivered as if unanimous and with the silent acquiescence of lazy or timid associates by a crafty chief judge who suffocates the law to his mind by the turn of his own reasoning. Quote. There are also those that will argue that the states have no right to speak on terms of constitutionality, but they fail to realize or admit that the states created the Constitution and the federal government and gave it life. The states are the final arbiter of the power of the federal government. Again, to quote Thomas Jefferson, quote, I consider the foundation of the Constitution as laid on this ground, that all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states or to the people. To take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specially drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power no longer susceptible of any definition. End quote. When it comes to secession, too many people mistakenly believe that the so-called Civil War settled the matter, when in reality all the so-called Civil War did was prove that a tyrannical government with enough guns and manpower can oppress the right of not only the people, but the states as well. Some of you may be thinking, what are you talking about? Secession is treason. It's illegal. If you're thinking that, you're absolutely wrong. Not only is it a part of your natural rights as human beings, it has historical foundation, as I shall demonstrate. In 1776, the colonies seceded from British rule with the Declaration of Independence. In that document, the secessionists made clear their right to do so. From the Declaration of Independence, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and a happiness. End quote. These secessionists then formed a new government, a confederation of independent states. Please note, the term state at this time and in the mind of the founders was interchangeable with country, the definition of a state as a country still holds true to this day. But wait, there's more. From the Articles of Confederation, 1781. In Article 1 it states, The style of this confederacy shall be the United States of America. In Article 2 it states, Each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence in every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. In Article 3 it states, the said states hereby severally enter into a firm league of friendship with each other for their common defense, the security of their liberties, and their mutual and general welfare, binding themselves to assist each other against all force offered to or attacks made upon them or any of them on account of religion, sovereignty, trade, or any other pretense whatever. Those who do not believe in the right of secession often speak of the phrase in Article 8 of the Articles of Confederation which states, Quote, the articles of this confederation shall be inviolably observed by every state and the union shall be perpetual, end quote. And the title, which states, quote, articles of confederation and perpetual union between the states of, end quote. 
However, this is because the detractors do not understand the meaning of a perpetual contract. A perpetual contract means that the contract has no end date and that the terms of the contract will continue in force until one or both sides breaks that contract and or desire to end it. The meaning of the term perpetual union is that the states were to be held together in a union until such time as the contract is broken or the states in question desire to break away from that union. The principal players in the formation of the United States agrees with this. To quote James Madison, quote, The people have an indutable, unalienable, and indefeasible right to reform or change their government whenever it be found adverse or inadequate to the purposes of its institution. End quote. He gave this quote while introducing the Bill of Rights. And here's Thomas Jefferson's take on it. Quote, if there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left to combat it. End quote. He gave that quote during his first inaugural address. And here's Thomas Jefferson again. Quote, if any state in the union will declare that it prefers separation to a continuance in the union, I have no hesitation in saying, let us separate. End quote. He said this in response to New England Federalists desiring to secede. Alexander Hamilton also promised in Federalist 32, quote, as to joining the Union, the state governments would clearly retain all the rights of sovereignty which they before had and which were not, by that act, exclusively delegated to the United States, end quote. Though the new Constitution for the United States did not specifically speak on the matter of secession, it did specifically give the people and the state the right to do as they please while specifically limiting the power of the federal government. James Madison, the author of the Constitution, says so plainly in Federalist 45, quote, The powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite, end quote. This theme is spelled out clearly in the Bill of Rights. The Ninth Amendment to the Constitution for the United States reads thusly, quote, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, end quote. What that means is, just because there's a listing of rights in the Constitution doesn't mean that's all the rights that the people have. The people have any and all and every right that they naturally have, and the Ninth Amendment is there as a guarantor of protection of those rights. The Tenth Amendment to the Constitution for the United States reads thusly, quote, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Now, what that means, very clearly, is that the United States government is given a list of very few defined limited powers. Any and all powers not given to the United States government are held by the states and or the people. It's clear as day. No mistaking it. Right there in black and white. No state would have ratified the Constitution had they believed that they were to be bound as a slave to the central government. To illustrate my point and to further show the right of secession, each and every state constitution has wording in it similar to that which is from the Texas Constitution of 1845. That's the year that they were admitted into the United States. Quote, All political power is inherent in the people, and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit, and they have at all times the inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their form of government in such manner as they may think expedient. And therefore, no government or authority can exist or exercise power within the state of Texas without the consent of the people thereof previously given, nor after that consent be withdrawn, end quote. It is with these words that the Republic of Texas joined the United States, and in 1861, they utilized their right and seceded, joining the Confederacy. 
After the end of the war for Southern independence, when Texas was forcibly returned at the end of a bayonet back into the Union, similar words remain in its new constitution, the one that Texas adheres to today. From the Texas Constitution of 1876, the current Texas Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, quote, All political power is inherent in the people, and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit. The faith of the people of Texas stands pledged to the preservation of a Republican form of government, and, subject to this limitation only, they have at all times the inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their government in such manner as they may think expedient. End quote. Furthermore, Texas stated in no uncertain terms that it is a sovereign state, stating in the Constitution, again from the Texas Constitution of 1876, the current Texas Constitution, Article 1, Section 1, quote, Texas is a free and independent state, subject only to the Constitution of the United States, and the maintenance of our free institutions and the perpetuity of the Union depend upon the preservation of the right of local self-government unimpaired to all the states, end quote. So if Texas, or any other state, does decide to secede, it is not illegal, treasonous, or crazy. It is our God-given natural right to do so. The following phrase sums it up best. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. That is a quote of Thomas Jefferson's personal seal. Men form governments for the purpose of preventing anarchy, allowing for the creation, execution, and judgments of law for the provision of recourse and justice, all for the preservation, defense, and protection of their life, liberty, and property. When these governments are in the habit to usurp power, destroy liberty, steal or destroy property, murder, breach the trust, or transgress beyond their constitutional limits, they put themselves in a state of war with man, thereby forfeiting the power entrusted them by men, and man shall be absolved of any compulsion of participation, allegiance, or obedience to that government. It is incumbent upon man to dissolve a government that is at war with him and to replace it with one that is at peace and will provide the securities and protections for which it was established. Oftentimes man is hesitant to do his duty out of fear, the fear of change, fear of the tyrant, fear of being disloyal, fear of involvement, fear of suffering, and so on. Despotic government counts upon man's fears and utilizes it against him. Man, however, is not alone. He is a part of society, and society is far more powerful than the most tyrannical government. The fears of man need not be the fears of society. Society need not suffer at the hands of resistance or of revolution, for it is not society that must change. Society and government are not one and the same. Societies implement government for their benefit. Government by its very nature is evil, and it will seek to expand and grow in scope and power, attempting to consume the society that it was established to protect. Therefore, it is an absolute necessity that society remains vigilant to keep government in check. If society fails in this effort, they must resort to more drastic means, at first resisting the breaches, or if government persists in its evil, by eliminating the tyrant and establishing government anew. This begs the question, at what point may resistance become revolution? There is a simple criterion to follow for the right of revolution. First, the abuses by government must be reasonably consistent as isolated instances may be dealt with through appeals or resistance. Second, the abuses by government must be reasonably seen, whether through, as John Locke put it, ambition, fear, folly, or corruption, to be designed to bring about the subordination of the people. Third, reasonable attempts at appeal and or resistance must be made and shown to be mostly ineffective. Once the criterion is met, society has not only a right but a duty to replace their government, peacefully if possible, by force if necessary. Now, there may be times in which government may make such a bold move, so despotic, so overwhelming that man or society has no chance at recourse and must resort to open rebellion as a matter of self-defense. In these cases, man, 
or society is not at fault and should not be held to account. Government, on the other hand, must be put in check or replaced for its transgression. The right of rebellion is a natural right, as it is the defense of life, liberty, and property against governments, and governments are nothing more than vessels by which we secure that which we hold most dear. As Thomas Jefferson so aptly put it, quote, We are not to expect to be translated from despotism to liberty in a featherbed. End quote. These words are true. If civil disobedience does not depose the tyrant, if interposition only inspires the bayonets of the tyrant, and if secession only brings upon the wrath of the tyrant, then the people are forced to rise up and storm the castle. Like my father always told me, sometimes the only thing a bully understands is a bloody nose. Until next time, this is Kurt, the Vexing Rebel, signing out. Follow the Vexing Rebel podcast on Twitter at The Vexing Rebel. Like us on Facebook and check out our YouTube channel. We will post a new podcast every Friday.